0: Welcome to the Mojo Maker for Women in Tech podcast, where you will learn career strategies and techniques to help you break down barriers, make more money, and thrive in your tech life at work and at home. Technology has never been more mission critical to our online stay-at-home world, and you are the key to its success. You'll hear from diverse women in tech as well as experts who share both personal and professional strategies so you can transform your work and your workplace from the inside out. I'm Karen Morstell, former Silicon Valley tech leader and serial CISO for iconic brands like AT&T Wireless, Microsoft, and Russell Investments. I hope you will join me in my mission and message of resilience and transformation to make an inclusive and equitable tech industry. If you find this show helpful, please leave us a like and share it. And don't forget to hurry over to createyourleadingedge.com to join innovative and affordable group coaching for women in tech On your terms. And now, on to Mojo Maker for Women in Tech. Hey everyone, it's Karen here, and welcome to the show. We are going to have a conversation today with my friend Cornelia Shipley. She has a saying that you can't talk your way out of something you behave your way into. We're going to talk about that today in the context of diversity, equity, inclusion for people of color in tech. Be sure to join us. Hey, everyone. Karen here, and welcome back to the Mojo Maker for Women in Tech podcast, where we talk about all of the ways that you can develop your career Make your workplace and your work life the best it can be from the inside out. Today, my guest is Cornelia Shipley, and I'm telling you, I have known Cornelia for years. We have talked about so many things relating to organizational development, leadership, and diversity, equity, and inclusion. Let me tell you just a little bit about her before we dive into the show, because you are not going to want to miss this. Cornelia is a bestseller. She has written a book called Design Your Life. She holds an MBA from SMU. She's in the process of developing her PhD in conscious business ethics and her organization and team, they specialize in retention and advancement of mission critical talent, including diverse talent. When I have a question about diversity, equity, and inclusion, and I want to hear it straight, I go straight to Cornelia. So, I'm going to let us get started here and say, hey, Cornelia, welcome to the show. Well, Karen, thank you so much for having me. I'm so
1: glad to be here and to be having this conversation, especially at this particular time in history, in our world and in our nation. And so so thank you for having me.
0: Yeah, like I said, think of you when I want to go have a conversation and just sort of cut right to the chase, would you say? (laughs) 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 So we've got a lot, a lot, a lot to talk about today. And I want to just kind of dive right in a little bit. And could you just tell the people who are listening, how you came to be in this position doing the kind of executive um, development and retention and advancement that you're doing today with your team?
1: Absolutely. So it's actually been an interesting journey. And part of the reason why I wrote the book, Design Your Life, when I was working on my MBA, uh, part of my time in MBA school, I was a student at Melbourne Business School in Melbourne, Victoria, Australia. And as part of that, I decided I wanted to sort through how people in Australia actually were able to embrace this kind of no worries attitude and to really live a life that they designed. And the longer That I worked in corporate America, the clearer I was that I wasn't living the life that I designed and most people that I worked with weren't living the life that they designed. And so in 2006, due to two significant life events that happened, my mother was diagnosed with breast cancer and my father had a stroke went to sleep and got up the next morning and sought medical care. So I had two very ill parents living while while I was living in Albuquerque, New Mexico, and they were living in, in Metro Detroit in Michigan. And so I left my corporate job and uh, came home as their only child to take care of them and started my business. And so for the last 14 years, I've led an incredible team of 17 professionals who help the Fortune 1000 really sort through their culture and development strategies to ensure the retention and advancement of their mission-critical talent.
0: You know, it's amazing. That's one thing we share in common. I didn't realize that about you, but it's interesting how our parents' life cycle events have a way of shaping where we end up going. There's a little bit of a very interesting impact there.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's. I think it's even more significant or certainly is different when you're an only child. I have lots of girls girls who are only children. And so there are a bunch of benefits to being an only child. And there certainly are some drawbacks, one of which is when your parents get sick, you're the person that has to help navigate, you know, that process and determine what's gonna happen in, in most cases. So um, unfortunately, you know, both my parents are no longer with us. My mother died not from breast cancer unexpectedly five days after my wedding in two thousand and twelve and we lost my dad to COVID nineteen on April the first of this year.
0: Oh man. We will do a whole nother show about caring for our elders. And all of that. Yeah, that's let's that's you have my my respect and my condolences. I'm sorry to hear about your dad. Well, thank you. Thank you so
1: much. Yeah. So, you know, I'm I'm very clear. Had I not left corporate when I did, when you know, when my mother got sick and when my mother passed away in 2012 and, you know, navigating my father's death was certainly different for a lot of reasons, including the fact that we were in the midst of of COVID-19. But I know for sure that making the decision to, to do this work meant that I was doing what I loved, which meant, as, as my husband often says, when you do what you love, it's never called work. And so I had that going for me. Plus, I had the infrastructure designed to be able to be present in the moment for what mattered most. And I think it's it's an honor and a privilege to be able to live a life where moment by moment, I have the ability to be able to be present in that moment for what matters most.
0: Well, not just your family, but all the rest of us as well, Cornelia. (laughs) I want to go dive into some of that because you and I, one of the things I really appreciate so much about the way you communicate is that you have these very clear, meaningful sound bites. That you can communicate to people that stick in our brain and help us you know, remember and recall so many of the important things we need to be thinking about every day. You said something last time we talked and I love it and I want you to spend a little bit of time about your mantra.
1: Yeah, so when I when I work with leaders around issues of diversity, equity and inclusion, one of the things that I I tell them, and I have been quoted in the media as having said, is that you cannot talk your way out of something you behaved your way into. And part of the reason that we see the racial uprising that's happening in the United States right now is because we have behaved our way into the result we have, and we cannot talk our way out of it. The only way we're going to get out of it is if we behave differently. And it's going to take the decision of people with um, power and influence to make the decision to do something different for this nation to to have a different result.
0: And, you know, when we say that it's the collective we, you know, we can't we can't be or talk our way out of something that we behaved our way into that we is an, a generational we. Is that right?
1: That's right. Well, you know, I think it was it was fascinating when, when you and I were talking about that, especially given your own personal journey, because you you certainly enlightened me about a couple of things in that conversation. But I think you're absolutely right that you know, in the African American community, in the African American tradition, we you know we say that that the current generation is is our ancestors' wildest dreams. And we, yeah. we say that because we have recognition that we would not be where we are had it not been for the sacrifices that the generations that came before us made. What we also recognize is just from basic science that you know your DNA carries the, the, the history and trauma of your ancestors in it. Because your cellular memory can recall trauma. And so when you talk about the collective, the collective we, when I've said that statement in the past that you can't talk your way out of something you behaved your way into, I was talking about specific actions a specific person took at a particular time. And when you said that to me about our ancestral connection, I think that you're absolutely right that there is a piece of genetic of genetics to this and it overlays the conversation in the United States in particular to African Americans about reparations and the conversation we have in the majority population has about you know this notion that you know i didn't own slaves and and i saw an interview recently in preparation for this conversation where a woman said that's not the point <laughs> right and that gets to what you were saying about this notion that this is generational and we, we all are going to have to make a decision to have racial trauma if we want it to end, to stop with this generation. And that is going to take all of us making the decision to behave differently.
0: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. The word that I really was, it was just really laid on me in a big way last fall was, you know, pain travels through generations until someone is willing to feel it. And how we have the conversation and then the way we have that conversation is going to determine whether or not we make progress, but we're going to get to that some more. <laughs> yeah. And
1: it's, it's so interesting too, Karen, because it's, it's a question of not only do you have to be willing to feel it, you have to be do, willing to do the work to heal it.
0: Oh, thank you for that. Yes. I agree with you completely. You have, well, it's not just about what we believe and what we think, it's how we act right you can always tell how somebody really believes by the way they act that's one of the things that dr jordan peterson has taught me <laughs> listening to his his work on uh, maps for meaning so i want to talk about the workplace a little bit if we can because all of this we have so much going on right now that we could unpack probably in multiple multiple conversations but the clearly we have to have the conversation about how do we relate to one another th- across our differences and, and celebrate the differences instead of trying to munge them all together into some kind of beige. And this is going to take a level of understanding on people's parts as participants in this at every level, particularly in the tech technology sector, which is sort of where I've been focusing. So Let's talk about the radical reality because while we can't talk our way out of something that we've behaved our way into, neither can we make progress about where we want to be unless we are radically clear about where we are. So I'd love you to talk about that a little bit.
1: Yeah, I think there's the wonderful map in the mall that says you are here, (laughs) right? (laughs) And more often than not, when organizations that we get phone calls, and I've been fielding lots of them over the last several months around these issues of diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging. And, And when that phone rings, typically people start off by saying, we don't know what to do. And part of the reason they don't know what to do is because they don't know where they stand as it relates to issues around diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging. Mm -hmm. They typically have some one to maybe five at most employee opinion survey questions. They have a, a cursory or surface level knowledge about the numbers of people that have left the organization. They have pockets of information about why people have left the organization. They typically have very limited line of sight to what's limiting people to get promoted and developed. And so the first thing we always do is go in and assess what what has happened and what are you doing now and help the organization clarify what their goals are. So one of the things that has happened as a result of, you know, the last several months is that organizations have been scrambling to do something and in, in some cases just to do anything. And this is not the time to take that action. This is the time to actually get clear about the organizational culture and the diversification of your organization, what you want that to look like. Clarify and enroll the leadership team in those objectives and then craft an action plan to go deliver on that. You know, I was, I was talking with a mutual colleague of ours, Angelie Brewers, uh, a couple of weeks ago on her Lead Your Movement program. And in preparation for that show, one of the things I said to her was, if diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging had been a business objective on a Fortune 1000s strategic plan and the results looked like what the results look like for most organizations, there'd be a lot of people who would be fired.
0: Yeah. Wow, like, that's very true. There's yeah, a they, lot of people that be yeah,
1: because yeah. if it was if it was viewed as a business objective, it was a, it, you know I worked for two very large consumer goods companies, and you know if you failed to deliver on cases of product, you got fired. If you failed to deliver on on product innovation, you got fired. And in this particular case, as it relates to diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging, that organizationally, corporate America has struggled to hold their leadership and their managers and um, their employee base for their behavior because they feel like they can't legislate um, morality. And that's true. But you can certainly define what your values are. You can certainly certainly articulate how you expect people to conduct themselves in doing and representing your brand and their failure to do that can result in disciplinary action up to and including termination.
0: I want to dig into that just a little bit with you, if that's okay. Sure. Because, because as you and I talked about earlier before the show, if we kind of try to go back to some essential elements and in, in the way I like the way Dr. Peterson, Dr. Jordan Peterson, sort of lays it out that we have on the one hand, the force of the masculine, and on the other hand, we have the force of the feminine. And the masculine is basically represented, in, I hope I'm not butchering this, I'm sure somebody will tell me if I do. <laughs> but the force of the masculine, it's really represented in the way hierarchical dominance has emerged over over billions of years. And that we have this whole force of Hierarchical dominance that really is the model and the culture that shows up in big tech. It happens to be primarily male hierarchical dominance, right? Not just, it's not just masculine, but it's mostly men. And there's really no incentive for them to change that. even if they knew how the hierarchical dominance, as far as an evolutionary thing has been with us since before the trees evolved. So it's, you know, old, like older than trees, as Dr. Peterson says. So here we have this situation where we have, it's come to this crisis point where we recognize how much better things would be if we could change it and nobody knows what to do and putting in place penalties that says if you're not going to deliver on these changes then you know you might get fired it sounds to me like kind of a yeah we got to do something but it's a lose lose proposition right
1: well i think you know what i'm trying to get at is that there's this notion one that you have to decide how you hold people accountable for their business objectives all of them right whether they are people objectives or product objectives or service objectives You have to be clear as a business leader, how you hold people accountable. And what I know from having reviewed hundreds of performance appraisals written by leaders across several key industry leading businesses is that people struggle to give people performance feedback. And it doesn't matter if that performance feedback is about cases or services or issues around diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging. And ultimately, you've got to get that formula right across the business and then decide how you hold people accountable for their failure to deliver on business issues including diversity equity inclusion and belonging
0: right right my my curiosity really is and and I don't know that we'll solve it here but I just want to kind of call it out cuz I think it's part of what makes it hard like we've never accomplished this before <laughs> and you know, on the one hand, we have you know dominant, cult, dominant culture, hierarchical dominant culture. That is, yeah, the incentives are going to have to be pretty hefty to get people to overcome something that's so deeply ingrained in them. And I'm not saying that by way of excuse. Right? Yeah.
1: Well, if you think about you know what Goldman Sachs announced uh, several months months ago. Now it might have been a year ago that they were not going to take a a company public that didn't have a woman on their board. And so so that's, you know, when you talk about what is prompting people to change, if you want Goldman Sachs to back your IPO, you need a woman on your board, period.
0: Got it. So that's really speaks to those who have the ability to have that kind of leverage have to use it. That's right. That's right.
1: Which is what I said earlier, right? The only way that this is going to, that... The state of our nation is going to change as if we get to the place where people are w- willing to share power, and they recognize that the success of a person who has been historically marginalized doesn't mean that you can't be successful. They're not taking something away from you.
0: Yeah, that's really the huge thing here, right? Is when and we've talked about that before. Um, Stephen Covey was famous for talking about not having a fixed pie, that it's not we don't live in a scarcity world. We live in a it's not a red ocean. it's a it really is a blue ocean. and we I'm mixing metaphors all over the place here, but but the idea of having that that it what gives me more or gives me more necessarily is less for you, that I have to take something away from you. That's the mindset that needs to shift because hierarchical dominance is very much about more for me, less for you. If I'm on, if I'm on the top of the stack, right?
1: Right. If you're in a pyramid model, you want to be at the top of the pyramid. That's absolutely correct.
0: Right. But in the context of saying, wait a minute, it doesn't have to be a pyramid, (laughs) right? This doesn't have to be a stacked game where, you Only have only those who are at the top can win. They're, I mean, I don't really know. We, nobody knows what that totally looks like, but there's, along the way, going to have to be a set of milestone markers that we can all kind of look at that says, hey, yeah, we're making progress. Right. And I think
1: one of the things that's serving as a catalyst for that is what's happening with Generation Z and their interest, commitment, desire for inclusion and belonging to happen in the companies in which they work. And so now what's happened is that, you know, people between the ages of 18 and 25 to 30 who are, you know, entering the workforce now are saying we want to see people who are in the LGBTQ community leading this organization. We want to see you know, trans men and women leading this organization. We want to see people of color. We want to see women. And if you don't have those people in your organization, we're not coming to work here. So when that happens, you're now, if you're in a position where you have not diversified your leadership and you have not empowered your managers to actually invest in diverse talent and create the cultural competence to lead them, you will not be able to win the war on talent.
0: That's exactly true. And we're seeing that, as you said, right now. That's right. That's right. And that's a critical issue in tech. It's a critical issue. Yeah, absolutely. Well, absolutely. I mean, even the cybersecurity industry, which is my you know particular sector of tech, is looking at a shortage in the millions. That's right. In terms of jobs right now, and all of that in the space of what you'd call an asymmetric war against an unseen enemy who probably doesn't have to worry about diversity and inclusion. Um, <laughs> right. It's a sort of an all comers kind of a culture on the other side. So we're really hurting ourselves in a huge way multi- in, in every direction by, by not embracing the, the belonging. And not to mention the mm-hmm. fact that like we are, as human beings, so hardwired for belonging. To mm-hmm. have this kind of a corporate machine that somehow excludes that from its value network is a little mind-boggling.
1: Yeah, I mean, when you talk about this desire for belonging, I have I have read in a couple of pieces of discourse, and I've I worked with a mindset mentor years ago, who who said, you know, people people have fundamentally at the core one of two beliefs that they're unworthy or they're unlovable, and both of those get to what you're talking about with this, which is this notion of belonging, right there are two kinds of descendants right there people either come from tribal people or from vikings and so yeah. if you look at the way that the world historically was structured you either had tribal people or you had vikings and as a result of that people who are who are descendants of tribal people have a huge need and desire to belong which is why you see in in so much of the research data around Retention of women and people of color in particular, that if you can get them the right level of support, they stay because they feel like they belong. What causes people to leave organizations? They don't leave companies, they leave bad managers, they leave bad teams where they don't feel like they're included, where their voice is devalued.
0: Well, what, yeah, the number one reason why people exit in the first year is for lack of fit, AKA they didn't belong here. Right. That's what the company says, right? Right.
1: If If they're happy that you left, they'll say, yay, they were a bad fit. But if they're a regrettable turn, a person that the company would have wanted to retain who left anyway, the conversation is, okay, so what did we do wrong? The conversation behind closed doors when you're with an HR leader and a business unit leader, it's like, okay, what happened in our culture that we had this person who we could not retain? And the truth of the matter is that the impetus for either person, the person you've ascribed to being a bad fit and the person who has self-selected to opt out of your organization that you would have wanted to retain, oftentimes are leaving for the same reasons. And because for one reason or another... If, if your culture is discriminatory because they happen to be in a marginalized body or in a marginalized sexuality or whatever, you don't, you, you don't have a problem with them leaving. But if they're in the majority and you wanted to retain them, or they're in the minority and you wanted to retain them, then suddenly it's a problem. The reality is the organization has to fix their entire culture. And when they get the culture right for their most marginalized, everybody will be able to show up and belong and fully contribute.
0: You know, I love along those lines to support what you're saying. I interviewed Jim Gordon a couple of years ago and uh, he at Intel and his role at Intel and he talks a lot about male allies. And one of the things that that Intel had set and you may be familiar with this in the work that you do, but as I understand it, Intel set a goal so that they would have their internal population of employees match the demographics of their customers. Yep, we have and, two clients that have done that.
1: Dell, okay. is, Dell is not our client, but we have two
0: clients that have done that. Yep. Okay. Cool. So, Intel, anyway, when they set that, they set that, and they reached that goal early. And one of the things that blew my mind as we were talking about the outcomes and the observations was that when they created this idea that when you lift one up you know all rise and they were being very intentional about making sure that they had representation across their organization they found that the people who were part of the what you call the dominant the dominant group in intel found that for the first time in their career their experience was that they were being heard which is really fascinating because what it's saying is Everyone has this sense that they're not getting their voice heard and it's a cultural thing that impacts everyone. It impacts some people more than others, but everybody notices it. Right. Which is why I said
1: earlier, if you can get your culture right for the most marginalized in your organization, everyone will be able to be successful.
0: Yeah. It's a huge win. Huge win. It's a, yeah, that's a, I'm, this must be the podcast of metaphors, but you know the rising tide floats all boats. I think that's one that fits here. Is that, like you said, it's not about scarcity. I don't take, I don't give you something and, and take it away from somebody else. We all win, and it all we all rise when it gets better. I want to shift a little bit and talk about allyship because there was a really interesting thing that you shared with me earlier about. We have women and people of color in the organization, and we have white women who may be in a leadership role. And I want, I really want people who are you know, in the audience right now who are listening, if you're a woman leader, I want you to pay attention. <laughs> if you're not already paying attention, do it now. But So you made a statement that I thought was really very interesting, and I would love for you to kind of move into that whole thing about white women and allyship.
1: Well, so here's uh, the interesting thing. So, the Executive Leadership Council, which is an organization of the top-ranking African Americans in the Fortune 1000, it's a, it's a, a an association, for lack of a better term, did a research study that was funded by Danaher, Interpublic Group, Johnson and Johnson, KPMG, Morgan Stanley, Pfizer. Unilever and the Walt Disney Company. And it had participants from several corporations. And one of the results from that research study was that they found that, and I want to read it directly off the slide so I don't get it wrong, that white women are not seen as advocating for others. And the piece of this information that I that I thought was interesting relative to STEM was, uh, and this is, I'm reading directly from the re- report, it says, in our recent study, Wonder Woman in STEM, we called for intersectional solutions exposing a considerable disparity between the programs that boost the advancement and retention of white women and those that do so for black women. Mentorship programs confer um, an 87% boost for white women in STEM yet have no impact for Black women in the same fields. Employee resource groups boost the advancement and retention of white women in STEM by 57%. Our data suggests they provide no boost for Black women in STEM. This view of white women's gains in diversity and inclusion echoes similar views of affirmative action. One study found that black employees haven't seen the same steady gains that women have in the the United States workplace. And so I think it's important that we understand that the structure is designed for white women to be successful and that their, their role in the organization has put them in a place where, unfortunately... 29, let me make sure I get this right again. I don't want to misquote from this study. So, 29% of black women and 29% of black men believe that white women are the primary beneficiaries of diversity and inclusion efforts at their company. And 14% of black men and 11% of black women believe that white women use their power to advocate for other underrepresented groups at their companies. So if you think about that, that's saying 86% of white women don't.
0: That's incredible. Okay, let's talk about what that looks like to do different. (laughs) <laughs> sure
1: <laughs> so, right, because as you, as you said, we could spend you know hours talking about this, but there are a couple of things. you know, one of the things that you asked me before joining was this notion of of why was I hopeful? And the reason that I'm really hopeful is because we see examples like Alexis Ohani in the, in the marketplace who are choosing to share their power. And so when you think about what are some actions you can take, one of the first things you can do is to begin to share your power by providing access to a marginalized person. And most people don't do that because they don't, they're not comfortable. So to get comfortable, you're going to have to intentionally change your, the coloring of your inner circle. Absolutely. Part of yep. the reason that the United States has states has been in such an uproar is because white people were seeing things that black people have known all their lives. It's not that more black people are getting murdered by police. More black people are getting murdered by police and it's being posted on Facebook.
0: Right, right, right. Right. It's more people are filming it. Exactly.
1: Yeah. And so, if you want to understand what's happening in the culture, you can't make the decision to only get news from the source that agrees with you. You have to be willing to diversify your sources of information and your socialization, right? The, one of the most of segregated times in this nation prior to COVID 19 was Sunday morning. And that's because you either went to a white church, a black church, a Hispanic church, a, a synagogue, a, you know, a Baha'i faith temple, whatever, whatever your whatever your orientation was, and if you were a Christian, if you were a white person you went to a white Christian church and if you were a black Christian you went to a black Christian church. And so you have to make the decision that you're going to diversify your conversation. And then lastly, be willing to go get some education. And one of the best pieces of education you can go get for yourself is active bystander training. One of the questions I get asked all the time, and we we obviously offer that kind of training in our organization, but one of the questions I get asked all the time is, okay, I've witnessed a microaggression. What do I do? And so there's training that can support you in understanding how you can address that And do it in a way that does not escalate the conflict. So you don't put yourself at risk or the other person at risk.
0: I think that's the thing that that keeps people from, fear keeps people from doing something. That's right. You know, they don't really, they might see it. And the first thing that'll happen is, am I seeing what I think I'm seeing? (laughs) And they'll talk themselves out of it. Or they'll say, I don't know what to do here. And I'm afraid of making it worse. So I won't do anything at all. Definitely. So that active, but they can contact your organization if they want to do something with that.
1: Absolutely. You can contact us at just 3C Consulting, the number three, the letter C, and then the word consulting. So there's two C's in there.com um, or, or email info, I-N-F-O at 3Cconsulting.com.
0: Yeah. We have so much to do to get people comfortable to, with being uncomfortable. That, and here's where I'm going with that because there was a Harvard Business Review article a couple years ago, and I'll see if I can find the link for it and post it in the show notes. It did a study basically of how people did their hiring and filled critical roles, and you would know this better than anybody. And that is, you tend to hire from the network that you operate in. And if you operate in a white country club network, and you're going to ask your colleagues, you know, who do you think would be great for that job? And that's what you're that's what you're gonna get is somebody that fits that community. And the only way this article suggested that the only way we really could change that, recognizing that people's natural tendency is to hang out with people who are like them. That's not necessarily a bad thing, it's what we do, right? But it's because it's comfortable. <laughs> but If you want to have any success at making a change, you have to hang in a community that isn't one that's going to make you feel like, yes, these people think like me, talk like me, operate like me, problem solve like me, mix it up because you've got to go be willing to make yourself uncomfortable in order to start to break down some of the I wouldn't say just boundaries, they're walls that we've built over time. And I got to tell you, as a person who likes to mix it up that way a little bit, it's kind of a lot of fun, but it's not for the faint of heart. It does take a fair amount of courage and also security in in who you are and and what you're about and what you value. and, And like I said, you have to be willing to be uncomfortable. Yeah, and I, the only
1: thing I would add to what you just said, Karen, is I think that that the level of discomfort for people in marginalized communities is very different than the level of discomfort for people in majority communities. Because to to be able to survive, people in um, minority communities have had to flex and adjust and accommodate for the people who who are in power, who are in positions of power, and so. There isn't the level of stretch we we call it code switching in the African American community. There isn't the level of stretch that exists for white people to make space for room space and room for people of color. That's a lot more work for them than it is for people who are of African American descent who have had to make space and make it comfortable for white people to survive.
0: Oh, definitely. I cannot speak for the African American community by any stretch but as a person who belongs to a minority to a large degree kind of walks between both the dominant culture and also is highly sensitized to the non-dominant culture in a certain way I can absolutely uh, see that when you're already in the non-dominant culture you you are so much more f- comfortable at flexing and shifting I mean right it, it's got to be so there's a ton of work to do, and I think I've love what you've suggested as, as two things people can do: active bystander training and being willing to kind of step into the learn how to step out of your comfort zone. What else do you have? And what else do you have? The
1: last thing I would say is just to be willing to share power. Right when you get ac- when you get access, um, be willing to share it with. The great saying in the religious community is unto the least of these, right? And so for those people that you know, like and trust and who you're willing to to advocate for, make that advocacy and be willing to share access and power, just like Alexis Ohani is doing to you know, make sure that when he has to look at the brown face of his daughter, he can say he did everything he could to ensure that she had access she and people who look like her have access to opportunity.
0: Yeah. It's really about being brave and kind and generous. And that that is not taking anything away from you. It's actually building something magnificent down the road that we can all be better off for. For sure. So Cornelia, you've mentioned, I want you to repeat again, how people can get a hold of you. If they want to engage your organization in doing some work
1: Absolutely. So our organization is 3C Consulting and our website is just www3 cconsultingcom So that's the number three, the letter C and then the word consulting ing.com. Our email address is info at 3cconsulting.com and our office number is 877853.
0: 5340. That's perfect. We'll be sure to put that in the show notes so everybody can look it up there and you know, you've you've taught me a lot, Cornelia, over the time that I've known you. It's been such an honor and a privilege and you know, you're one of the inspirations for the hashtag that we have for this show which is be an ally, right? Step up and be brave and don't be afraid to lift up your brothers and sisters, because boy, that's, that's where the hope is. That's where the hope is in this crazy, crazy world right now.
1: (laughs) Well, Karen, thank you so much for having me. This was a wonderful opportunity for this conversation. And I think it was really important to be able to talk about a lot of the intersectionality of what's happening on our planet and in our nation right now. So thank you for inviting me.
0: It is my pleasure and honor Cornelia, and I look forward to having another conversation with you again. I would love that. Okay, you take care. You too. That's it for today's show. Mojo Maker for Women in Tech podcast is part of the ecosystem of knowledge sharing and affordable group coaching to help reverse the trend of women leaving tech and to help diverse women in male dominated industries get the visibility, opportunities, and compensation they deserve be sure to check out our five-day challenge by visiting us online at createyourleadingedge.com. Like what you hear? Subscribe, share, or leave a review wherever you listen to the show. We'll be back again next week. Be well, stay strong, and remember, be an ally.